Welcome to Global Perspectives. We're joined once again by John Petulo and Jenna Bernard. John and Jenna are co-heads of Global Bonds here at Janice Henderson. And with this being the last episode of the year, it's great timing to look forward into what bond markets might look like in 2023. So John and Jenna, thanks for joining. And John, we'll just start with you. Can you just go ahead and recap the global growth deceleration that's been in place this year and just your team's general view of the macro world right now? Yeah, well, our, our view is it's very much boom-bust economics is back, really as a legacy of the COVID response, whereby unusually you had a massive, almost warlike fiscal and monetary response to get us out of lockdown and get going again. And the rather depressing fact, I suppose, in hindsight, was they completely overcooked the uh, the chicken. And that really led to a massive boom. And even if you were sympathetic to MMT and fiscal expansions, I mean, this has been an abject failure because the, the MMT school would say, well, you, you print money and you expand fiscal policy to close unemployment, but then, then you stop. You don't keep going. And broadly speaking, a lot of that stimulus was consumed. It wasn't invested in, you know, healthcare, technology, infrastructure, buildings, schools, hospitals, all that sort of stuff. It was broadly spent. The good sector couldn't cope with that. And that was then obviously compounded by the Ukraine war and all the bottleneck problems we've had. And that led to a massive <laughs> inflationary surge, which then led to a massive and very aggressive response by the Fed, who were late to the party, behind the curve. Arguably got a bit of muddled on the tightness of the US unemployment market and, as I said, the Ukraine war and various other factors, but then put the brakes on very, very hard and then were screeching down the other side. And just very briefly, you know, if we were looking for a session, we'd look for the following things. You'd look for a strong dollar, super high energy price, a shrinkage in the rate of change of money supply growth and an inverted yield curve. And guess what? We've got all four. And you're saying boom bust, you're talking about wartime like stimulus. So there's also a lot of talk about just this part of the cycle being a little more fundamental, not bust as in a crisis sense, but just we're kind of getting into a bit of this global slowdown and some potential earnings weakness or earnings recession on the equity front and a little more of a, a typical cycle to weather through. Do you, do you feel like it's not so typical actually? In that no, no, I'd say it's more typical. It's more like when okay. we were when I was young. It was almost a political business cycle whereby you stimulated the economies, you know, to get us out of COVID or to get reelected. And the sine wave, if you like, is quite short and quite pronounced. And that's actually, Adam, I think easier to comprehend and understand. And it should actually provide investors and asset allocators greater opportunity because I think the various asset classes will move faster. It's a little more of a straightforward playbook then. So Jenna, then where do things go from here as far as that playbook? What type of, of leading indicators are you focused on for the next step of the cycle? Very long lead indicators, kind of six to 12 months, anticipatory indicators, you know, housing cycles, monetary aggregates, yield curves, as John referenced. Everything's just complete collapse, synchronized collapse. The speed and depth of the downturn of those long lead indicators, we haven't seen anything like it really since the kind of early 80s. And it's in every country we look at. So objectively, there's no signs of a bounce in those indicators. It suggests the first half of 2023 is going to be very difficult from a growth perspective. Kind of traditional lead indicators like the conference board, that's already well and truly in recession territory. Coincident indicators like industrial production, employment, which we'll come to 
just turning, turning as we speak. Really, it's the kind of exciting phase of the growth downturn for bonds. You know, we're getting into the depths of it. And as I said, first half of 2023 is going to feel, I think, pretty shocking from a growth perspective. Where's the opportunity come from? The opportunity comes from bonds have completely decoupled from growth momentum, completely decoupled. You know, if you had managed bond funds going back to the early 80s, you get long duration as growth momentum peaks and bond yields roll over in real time with that growth momentum. The growth momentum has just been completely collapsing. And here we're just using you know, six-month rate of change for ISM new orders, completely collapsing and bond yields have gone vertical. And that happened three times from the early 70s to the 90, early 80s on three occasions you got that decoupling it does not go in on forever the opportunity is that eventually it gets too stretched and bond yields reconverge down to the growth momentum and we are just at that point and that's why it's so exciting for bonds what does it take for that recoupling peak inflation and we can talk to you about that first half of next year is the collapse in cpi inflation collapse. That's going to be the heart of the move. For core CPI, it's more linear process throughout the year. But for headline CPI, it's going to be very fast into June. The inflation swaps have the fixings around 2.3 for June. That's the first point. And the second, the turn in employment. And we can talk to you about that as well. That is a key catalyst required for bond yields to recouple down to growth momentum in the 70s. And that, everything we look at suggests that is coming as well in Q1 of next year. So the bond market is already picking up on that. You know, bond markets no longer responding to Powell's hawkish talk or the hawkish dot plot, well and truly moving on. And as I said, we're coming into a really opportune time. It's the only asset class that hasn't repriced with that growth momentum. And when it happens, it can be very fast and furious. So that's really where the opportunity comes from. The lead indicators haven't changed for months. They all look very depressing. It's just how far could you stretch bond yields away from that negative growth momentum? And in October, if you look at it on a kind of Z-score basis, um, we were as, as decoupled from growth momentum as we were in 1980 and 1966. Those are the only comparable periods. So yeah, we are exci- basically excited about bond total returns, both the income and the capital, as we move into next year. I could- See why you're getting excited. So the the first point then about that decoupling. So in simple sense, is the growth momentum's already rolling over, but the bond yields haven't yet rallied with the growth slowdown. And so is that essentially because of the inflation variable? Is that what yes. this has in common yes, with yes. those three times since seventies? Totally. Yeah. Totally. So core CPI shock, not a headline, but core CPI shock, and an aggressive response from central banks. Because remember, this rise in bond yields this year has been all about the real yield. It's not about the bond market's inflation expectations. That's actually declined over the course of the year. It's all about central banks responding late, hiking into the wrong phase of the cycle and driving real yields higher. And frankly, we're reaching the limits of that. So yeah, that's exactly right, Adam. Okay. And as far as those limits, it is it reasonable to compare to those historical scenarios since the 1970s? How long can that decoupling persists? Is it historically a matter of months or quarters or is it years sometimes? No, not years. It persists when we've looked at it until in two of the three occasions, it was the first negative non-farm payrolls print in real time, unrevised. In another example, it took a little bit longer, but 
until I think slightly more lagging indicators turned. But no, it doesn't persist for years. It's a matter of quarters at most. So we got, you know, two pieces of the puzzles had to fall in place to get that recoupling. One was peak inflation, which in the US is very convincing at this point. And the second is really the employment market turn. And we can talk to you about that if you're interested. Please. Yeah, that was the next question. So you hinted at employment being important. So let's dig into that. Yeah. I mean, the employment market, when we look at it, frankly, in summary, non-farm payroll looks very much like the outlier. You know, you've got artificial strength relative to the household survey. 80% of the time, household survey, which feeds the unemployment rate, and the establishment survey, which feeds non-farm payrolls, move together. When they don't, household survey leads non-farm payrolls 75% of the time. The tax data, withholding tax data as well, that we use has shown a very sharp slowdown in aggregate wage income, which supports the household survey. And things like jolts, this inflection point down in job openings, you know, that happened when you got the first non- negative non-farm payroll back in the 07 cycle. So the inflection in jolts is actually quite a coincident indicator. It's not a leading indicator. And obviously things like challenger job cuts and so forth. So I think you know, if you are optimistic, you would say the labour market's in much better balance now. You know, lead indicators like hours worked, the kind of employment indicators that feed into the conference board lead indicator already signaling recession or collapse back down. So, you know, when we model out business cycles, not using economic models, but looking at business cycles and the lead lag, very much Q1 next year should show a sharp slowing in employment growth in the US. And if anything, a risk for a negative non-farm payrolls. In other developed markets that we look at, um, we're starting to see kind of turns in the unemployment rate, but very gradual. If anything, you'd say it's kind of bottoming and starting to turn. But there you've got very different wage dynamics by country. So places like Europe and Australia, very limited wage growth. UK and US, obviously, much higher wage growth. So yes, I think kind of Q1 next year is potentially setting up for this collapse, you know, the heart of the collapse in the headline CPI and a much more convincing weakening in employment markets as well, based on normal business cycle needs. So if we're facing that recoupling going into early next year, obviously positive for duration risk. We've also got an inverted yield curve, at least in the US. Mm. So what do you think this means for fixed income investors? How about navigating that short or intermediate? And I know you're a global bonds team. So what does it mean geographically for you? Yeah, I I could tell you that. I mean, firstly, bonds are competitive within themselves against history. So, you know, on any historical context, bond yields are pretty good. Real yields are positive, Adam, which is unusual. Thirdly, you've had a widening. Obviously, sovereign yields have risen as in prices down and corporate bond spreads have widened as in prices down. So you've had that sort of double negative. So the absolute yield you can see in corporate bonds, we think, is really appealing. It's also bonds, those yields are very competitive against other asset classes. So currently, they're competing for cash for obvious reasons. But when cash rates peak and come down, you have to anticipate people pushing longer for short-term bonds and then intermediate bonds, um, obviously. But you've got to imagine that that will come. That's the next part of the cycle. So that's, I think, really interesting as well. And, you know, going forwards, that is the cycle. That's how it's meant to work. And that's why we think bonds are appealing from here. And as I said, you know, they really compete 
with equities as well. And that's how the cycle rebuilds itself. Then, of course, the curve starts disinverting or, or steepening up as front ends eventually come down. And then you want to push longer. But one thing we have been conscious of, the credit curve, as in the extra spread you get over the sovereign curve, is actually quite flat. So you don't want to push too long along the curve in credit. And are you looking at investment-grade credit or do you see a role of non-investment-grade at this point? Yeah. Again, investment-grade has to compete with high yield and all other asset classes. Investment-grade tends to correlate pretty well with rates volatility and correlates very well with sovereign bonds. Okay, So they tend to move in the same direction. High yield, so it's more of a risk asset class. And subject to your view on the downturn, at its simplest, in a soft landing, you would venture into high yield. But why bother? Because high yield spreads today are roughly 440. So the high yield market is saying there's a soft landing coming. It's all happy as Larry. We don't feel that's a good risk return at present because if you actually buy the hard landing recessionary case, high yield spreads could easily be seven, 800 over. Okay. And it's December 15th right now, by the way, for listeners. So yes. you mentioned around 440-ish on high yield spreads. And so to your point, in a hard landing scenario with that kind of spread widening, those yields aren't enough cushion to outperform the investment grade counterparts, is your point. Correct. In a hardish landing scenario. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And I'm just realizing being here in Denver, I've been a bit biased in this conversation. I'm thinking about the US yield curve and US spreads, you two over in London. So from a global perspective, are, are you being somewhat US focused? in the opportunity set right now or what's the global opportunity set and the global mix looking like there's not a huge kind of geographic dispersion between european and us high yields really the kind of peak systemic risk for europe were in october when you had the guilt crisis in the uk and you had you know kind of maximum fears about energy during the winter in in europe but then we had a period of very warm weather and i think you know the general feeling is that energy crisis at worst has been kicked off until next winter. There's a little bit of extra spread in Europe, but I wouldn't say there's really any huge differential opportunity set there to be mining. So, um, And then once you get beyond euro-denominated credit, you're really talking very small, relatively illiquid backwaters, which are much trickier to trade tactically. So no, Adam, there's not like a, a massive geographic opportunity set in credit. And remember, you know, quality issuers, big issuers in investment grade, they'll issue in every currency. It's not like you can only buy it, a US company in the US dollar credit market. So it's, it's a bit different from equity investing from that perspective. So if there is an opportunity set, you know, thinking about geographies, it's much more in the interest rate divergence, which central banks are actually going to turn dovish quicker. You know, the Reserve Bank of um, Australia, the governor there was quite critical of Powell and said they weren't going to follow a scorched earth policy of getting inflation down as quickly as possible. We'd rather actually take a bit longer and protect the employment market. And so, you know, get a slightly more dovish tone in certain geographies. Obviously, Bank of England's always weighing the high inflation against the growth risks. And the ECB, you've just got an ultra, ultra hawkish ECB. So I think the geographic opportunities are much more in the interest rate space and the potential divergence in, in policy there than it is in credit. Yeah, because I think the Fed is arguably a bit further down the line. It's probably a bit cleaner and clearer to see the, the outlook in the States. As Jen said, the ECB's come out today remarkably hawkish mm. and remarkably hawkish trying to defeat 
broadly supply-side inflation, which is broadly the high but now falling oil price. So that's put a bit of a spanner in the works. And sometimes these central banks are a little, little hard to read. Whereas, of course, last night we had the Fed and the market wasn't particularly interested in what the Fed had to say because the dollar and the weak oil price is already sniffing uh, a turn in the cycle in the States. And that gives us a lot of sort of corroborative evidence that we're, we're making sense here. The dollar had the uh, one of the weakest Novembers, I think, for a decade, which would suggest arguably that interest rate differentials are falling against the dollar. And as I said, the oil price is down on the year now, which would suggest the demand destruction that the central banks are putting through is working. And hence, the cycle is turning over in the camp that we're in. Okay, so this has been a great summary as we're going from decoupling to recoupling between rates and the growth environment. So Jenna, can you just sum up in total what this means for bond investors right now, or at least what it should mean? In essence, we think the outlook for bonds is kind of once in a cycle opportunity. We've got yields which are back to the early 2000s, the yields on core fixed income, government bonds, investment, quality investment grade bonds have materially repriced the levels we haven't seen since 2008 and before. You don't have to stretch for yield. There's an opportunity given where we are in the cycle and given how stretched bond yields are relative to growth momentum as the inflation cycle is turning and it's turning fast. So frankly, 60-40 was dead this year and it could be ripping next year. Bonds could well do exactly what they're supposed to do in a portfolio. They didn't do it in 2022 for completely rational, logical reasons related to inflation and central bank response. 2023 looks like a completely different environment. Well, that definitely helps sum it up. So we have a lot of pessimism on the economy, but a lot of optimism on core bonds. So thanks, John and Jenna, for the recap here. And thanks, listeners, for joining. If you like this, check out more Global Perspectives wherever you listen to your podcasts and also the Janice Henderson Insights website for more views from all of our investment teams. See you next time. of U.S. inflation swap fix, UBS June 2023 fix at 2.43%. December 2022, source of U.S. high yield spread, Bloomberg, ISB of a U.S. high yield index, government option adjusted spread, 437 basis points as at close of the 14th of December 2022. ISB of a U.S. high yield index tracks the performance of U.S. dollar denominated below investment grade corporate debt publicly issued in the U.S. domestic market. 60-40, refers to portfolios composed broadly of 60% equities and 40% bonds. The premise being that different returns from the two asset classes should help to diversify risk. Basis point or BP equals 1 one hundredth of a percentage point. 1 BP equals 0.01%, 100 BPS equals 1%. Challenger Job Cuts, is a monthly date release from Challenger, Gray and Christmas that provides information on announced corporate layoffs. Conference Board is a non-profit business membership and research group organization. The Conference Board Leading Economic Index, LEI, is a composite of economic indexes designed to signal peaks and troughs in the business cycle. Consumer Price Index, CPI, is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the U.S. consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. Credit spread is the difference in yield between securities with similar maturity but different credit quality. Widening spreads generally indicate deteriorating creditworthiness of corporate borrowers, and narrowing indicate improving. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. 
Economic cycle is the fluctuation of the economy between expansion, growth, and contraction, recession. Federal Reserve, or Fed, is the central banking system of the United States. Front-end relates to bonds with a maturity date on the yield curve that falls within the next few years. Hawkish is indication that policymakers are looking to tighten financial conditions, for example, by supporting higher interest rates to curb inflation. Darvish indicates the opposite and describes policymakers loosening policy, i.e. leaning towards cutting interest rates to stimulate the economy. High-yield bond, a bond that has a lower credit rating than an investment-grade bond. Sometimes known as a sub- or below-investment-grade bond. These bonds carry a higher risk of the issuer defaulting on their payments, so they are typically issued with a higher coupon, regular interest payment, to compensate for the additional risk. Inflation, the annual rate of change in prices, typically expressed as a percentage rate. The Consumer Price Index, CPI, is a measure of the average change over time in the prices paid by urban consumers for a market basket of consumer goods and services. Inflation swap is an agreement between two parties where one party receives a variable payment tied to an inflation rate and pays an amount based on a fixed interest rate. It enables one party to transfer inflation risk to another and can offer an estimate of inflation expectations. Institute for Supply Management, ISM, is a US-based supply management association. It conducts surveys of its members that act as a barometer of economic conditions. Investment grade, a bond typically issued by governments or companies perceived to have a relatively low risk of defaulting on their payments. The higher quality of these bonds is reflected in their higher credit ratings. JOLTS is an acronym for the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, which is a monthly report by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Its report on job vacancies is widely followed. Lead indicator, a piece or set of economic data that can help provide an early signal of where we are in an economic cycle. Modern monetary theory, or MMT, is an unconventional economic theory that states governments can spend freely by creating money. Non-farm payrolls, household survey, the non-farm payroll series, the establishment survey, measures jobs while the household survey measures people in jobs in the US. Both surveys are conducted for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. A representative sample of businesses in the U.S. provides data for the payroll survey while a sample of U.S. households provides information for the household survey. Volatility, the rate and extent at which the price of a portfolio, security or index moves up and down. If the price swings up and down with large movements, it has high volatility. If the price moves more slowly and to a lesser extent, it has lower volatility. The higher the volatility means the higher the risk of the investment. Yield, the level of income on a security, typically expressed as a percentage rate. Yield curve is a graph that plots the yields of similar quality bonds against their maturities. In a normal, upward-sloping yield curve, longer maturity bond yields are higher than shorter dated or front-end bond yields. For an inverted yield curve, the reverse is true. Yield cushion, defined as a securities yield divided by duration is a common approach that looks at bond yields as a cushion protecting bond investors from the potential negative effects of duration risk. The yield cushion potentially helps mitigate losses from falling bond prices if yields were to rise. Z-score is a numerical measurement that describes a value's relationship to the mean of a group of values. Diversification neither assures a profit nor eliminates the risk of experiencing investment losses. Fixed-income securities are subject to interest rate, inflation, credit and default risk. The bond market is volatile. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall, and vice versa. The return of principal is not guaranteed, and prices may decline if an issuer fails to make timely payments or its credit strength weakens. High-yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use.
Janus Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data source from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, registration number 2606646. Each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Henderson Management SA, registration number B22848 at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janus Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited. Company registration number 1997007082N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E. Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. Taiwan ROC by Janice Henderson Investors Taiwan Limited, independently operated, Suite 45A1, Taipei 101 Tower, Number 7, Section 5, Sinyi Road, Taipei, 110. Telephone, 02810111001. Approved size license number 023, issued in 2018 by Financial Supervisory Commission. G. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore. Limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its subregulations. H. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan. Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instruments business. I. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 47, 124, 279, 518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16, 165, 119, 531, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 6, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43, 164, 177, 244, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 8. J. The Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1222-46730-123023.